Last week, we began our series in Esther, which is the last historical book in the Old Testament. Now, written sometime around 486 B.C. after Ezra's return from exile to Jerusalem and before Nehemiah's return, Esther's story takes place. The author of Esther is unknown, but from the details of the book, we can surmise that he is Jewish and that he is writing a few generations later because he has this bird's eye view of what went on. And so it's his perspective, even though we don't know who it is. This book tells a fascinating story. It is a fascinating story. And, and, and it's, in fact, so incredible in many ways and, and so surprising in many ways that a few commentators view this book as a work of fiction. But it is not. It is not a work of fiction because it appears in the canon of Scripture. It is in our Bible. It is a history book. It is a history book in the canon of Scripture, which means it is inspired by God. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient as the Word of God. And because it is the Word of God... It has something relevant to say to us even 2,000 years, more than 2,000 years after its writing. And because this is a story, we will read it as such. It is a, it is a story. And so I will, again, as I did last week, and I may be doing this quite often, we will look at the setting of the story, we will look at the story itself, and then we will again look at the surprising hidden providences of God in this story, which is the main point of the book. If you, wanna, if you just want to say, what is the main point of the book? It is seeing, which can seem like an oxymoron, but seeing the hidden providences of God, which we are able to do because we do look at this story 2,400 years after it took place. Now, the title of my message this morning is this, Learning to Read Backwards. Learning to Read Backwards. Now, like any good story, at times, this one will surprise us, and at times, it will perplex us, and A few times it will even shock us, which I think we will see this morning. It will it will make us laugh. It will it it might make us cry because ultimately this story in God's word is a story about life and death. It is a story about good and evil, and it is finally it is a story about sin and redemption. It is a story about the God that we serve. So let's look first at the setting. And we we studied that last week in in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, the kingdom of Persia, which is where this this story of Esther takes place, is led by a king named Ahasuerus, a weak and foolish king. His rule of 
Persia is actually greater than Persia, which is modern-day Iran. His rule extends all the way from the borders of India to the borders of Ethiopia, 127 providence. It is a vast, vast kingdom. And throughout Persia's history, one of the things they kept trying to do is conquer more countries. And one of the countries they continually tried to conquer was Greece, which sets the background for the book of Esther, sets the background for what we are studying this morning. Ahasuerus, in chapter 1, holds this great party. It is a party that in chapter 1 we see is, is... has princes and nobles. Uh, these princes and nobles that are attending this party that Ahasuerus is, is holding, these are princes and nobles, uh, many from the areas, the kingdoms that, that were conquered by Persia. And so these guys are there. They're not there as just completely loyal subjects. They're there as, as, as conquered men who, who are now under the rule and reign of this one king, Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. And these, these men, they still have responsibilities in their, in their provinces. Now, Ahasuerus holds this party because he wants to once again go to war with Greece. He wants to conquer Greece. And so what he does is he holds this party. He holds this party so that he can impress these nobles and princes with his power and with his wealth. And he holds this party to impress them and to gain their support, to to win their loyalty. So he holds this vast party for six months. Six months of feasting, six months of drinking, six months of eating, six months of hanging in the capital of Susa, which is where this is taking place, where the palace is taking place. And at the end of this six-month party of feasting, he invites then the common people of the city of Susa, the the citadel where, where the palace is located. He invites the common people to come to this garden that he has to party with him for another seven days. So we we read that in in verse 5. And when these days, the 180 days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And and what a courtyard it is. It is a courtyard that... it has white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and, and silver on a mosaic pavement of this special marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. And so they're walking literally on, on streets that are filled alone with wealth. And sitting on couches of gold and drinking from cups made of gold. And at the end of this first section in chapter 1, verse 8, the author says, And drinking was according to this edict. So this is, this is a command. This is a rule of the kingdom. There is no compulsion. There is no compulsion when it comes to drinking, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Drink as long and as hard 
and as much as you want. This is your time. Have a great time. And as we see, as we begin, as we read in chapter 1, starting in verse 10, which is our, our verses this morning, we will see that King Ahasuerus takes full advantage of his own edict. Read with me in verse 10, chapter 1. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. What is to be done? Then Memukam said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucam proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people." Oh, there's a lot here. <laughs> there's a lot here. Now, <laughs> this section begins with the seven-day feast ending. And on that seventh day, as we see in verse 10, the king, having taken 
response to his own edict about drinking without compulsion on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. In other words, he was drunk. He was roaring drunk along with all his nobles. They were drinking for a full week, nonstop. And, and as we will soon see, these men, these literally buffoons, they drink way too much and they think way too little. That's what we will see here. And in his drunkenness, King Ahasuerus makes a spectacle of himself by desiring and deciding to have his wife, Queen Vashti, make a spectacle of herself by parading her before this group of men so that they can gawk at her beauty. Many look at Queen Vashti Oh, there's a lot of responses. Many see her as a villain. They look at her and say, "What? she didn't obey the king. And that there are other, from the other side, who say, oh, she is a hero. She is noble. Now, it, it's not surprising that he, she is being treated this way. Women in ancient Persia were considered possessions. And as we see, They were treated with no respect, more like slaves than wives. And in his drunk arrogance, the king asked the queen to parade her beauty before all of this horde of men. And and this is the act that we're reading in the story today. But we will also see this this really horrific story. We We will soon see the hidden providences of God behind all of these actions, even the evil actions that are taking place. And so that leads us to this story. This setting is this party. And now this story, the king wants to parade his wife before all of these men. She is ordered to come, and and with great shock, she refuses. She refuses to allow herself to be dehumanized. To be dehumanized by her drunken husband as she would strut around as eye candy for these, these drunken nobles to see. It, it, is, it is a stunning turn of events because no one says no to the king. You do not refuse the king. Now, the author, the author does not give us a reason in the story for her refusal to come. He is silent. And and we must be careful not to manufacture a reason, but we can consider some genuine possibilities based on the culture of the day and the way women were treated in that day. Some commentators believe that she was asked to come wearing only the crown. To display her beauty. No clothes. Which would be incredibly demeaning and reprehensible. But a request not surprising for a group of drunken men. And she says no. Some commentators think she wears the crown... And just a loose-fitting robe, again, just revealing and exposing her to humiliation in front of these men. 
and other commentators simply believes she had enough of being a trophy wife. Again, we don't know. We don't know. But there are some real possibilities. Now, was, was Vashti right or was Vashti wrong? Was she noble or was she unsubmissive? Well, again, the author doesn't tell us. But given the culture, it's understandable why she said no. Karen Job, in her commentary on the book of Esther, says this. Christian interpreters of this verse by and large agree that if an ungodly husband makes unholy demands of his wife, the wife can justifiably disobey them. Given the state of mind of Ahasuerus and the implied purpose of his command, one might be inclined to give Vashti the benefit of the doubt in this case. Perhaps she was the more noble of the two. I would tend to agree with that. Now, this might help explain her reason, but again, it's only, it's only speculation. And the Lord, in his wisdom and in his inspired word, chooses not to tell us the reasons why, and that's okay. What we must be careful not to do with this passage is to insert our own feelings from our our current culture into this passage and make it about Im- one about immoral treatment of women because that's not what the author is intending to do. Is there, is there truth in how women should not be treated that we can see here? Absolutely. But the main point of this passage is not about fem- feminism. It's not about sexual harassment. It's not about domineering husbands. It's not about leering males. It does portray what happens to men and women in a fallen and wicked world where God is nowhere to be found and human desires trump everything. What's most important in understanding this passage is understanding God's reason for this event and why it happened. And what we will eventually see as his hidden providence at work, even in evil actions among people. So not looking to the human side, but looking to the divine side, looking to God. And certainly what we see in this passage is disturbing and humiliating. But, but there's also some, some subtle humor in here. I mean, you look at verse 16 of chapter 1. Then Memucam said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all officials and all the peoples who are in the, all the provinces of the king. Really? Really? Now, 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 look at the humor of, of this passage. The Persian king, King Ahasuerus, this Persian king who controls armies, who controls this vast empire, 127 provinces, who can require every man to show up at his party, cannot get his own wife to come. Now, what kind of powerful ruler is that? And in response... 
you, you see the transition in verse 10. On the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. And then in verse 12, at this the king became enraged. And anger was in his heart. He, he shifts immediately. He goes from being merry with wine to enraged. And then he whines. And in his whining, he consults his council, who are all in a tizzy themselves about this woman, Vashti, who wouldn't come and obey the king. And they're saying, what do we do about this? What, what do our laws say we should do? She's going to destroy all the women of the kingdom. Every marriage in the kingdom is going to be ruined because of this woman. Now think about that. This is happening in the palace This is happening with the nobles and the king. Who else is going to know about it? But these guys are just in an uproar over this. And, and, And the problem is there is no law that exists to address the queen refusing to attend the king's party. So what do they do? They make one up. Okay, let's let's make a law in their overreaction. The empire strikes back. And they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. They decide, they make a decree banning Vashti. And if you look all through this passage, they say, Queen Vashti in verse, in verse 10 or 11. Queen Vashti in verse 12. Queen Vashti in verse 17. Queen Vashti in verse 15. And then you get to the verse 19 and all you see is Vashti. We're done with this queen. She's queen no longer. The empire has struck him back. All the women of the kingdom, they're going to get this law. We're going to get this law to every province, to every husband, to every wife, and they will never again have any wrong ideas about their husbands. They will always honor and respect their husbands. Why? Because we made a law. <laughs> really? <laughs> His, his advisors are no better than him. The king's advisors are as bad as he is. They, they think Vashti's refusal is this crisis for the entire empire. Now, if the king isn't already embarrassed in front of these men by Vashti's not coming, here's, here's the ironic humor of this story. He creates a law. Nobody else knows about this. But these men, but see, he creates a law and sends it throughout the entire kingdom to let everybody know basically what Queen Vashti did. He, in his foolishness, he embarrasses himself throughout the entire kingdom. His nobles are foolish. Do they, do they really think they can control women in the kingdom by a decree? Yeah, the ladies are going, not a chance in the world. Of course not. I mean, think about the foolishness of it. We're, we're going we're gonna to remove her. We're going to have this decree. We're going to change it for all the kingdom. Now, now, think about it. Let's say I asked Marilyn. Let's say I asked Marilyn to make chocolate pudding for me. And, and she makes me fish instead. Now, what do I do about this? I know, I, I show up at care group and I, and I proclaim the care group, this is what my wife did. And, and we, need, we need to make a rule about this. Um, 
We should make a rule that wives at Grace Church cannot give their husbands fish when they ask for chocolate pudding. That, that's the new rule here at Grace Church. And not only that, I'm going to get a new wife who makes chocolate pudding for me when I want it and never makes fish for me. And that's going to appear at our family meeting in our church bylaws. And every wife here is going to get a copy of those bylaws so that they respect their husband's wishes. How is that going to work? Of course not. Of course not. Laws don't create righteousness. Laws laws don't create obedience. We learned that with the nation of Israel. And so here's this story. Here's this, this remarkable story of these, these men who, who are trying to change the atmosphere, the, the climate, the culture of their nation, of their vast empire by creating a law that is meaningless and worthless. These, these men are trying to rule in a domineering way and it won't work. And this story is... This is just an incredible story. Great story. And there is humor behind it. But there's also a subtlety to this story, a very subtle point to this story. And it is a a subtlety about contrast. The contrast in this story between two kingdoms. Ahasuerus' kingdom, think about this. He has the whole world at his fingertips. He has the power of his army and he has unimaginable wealth. He sits on top of the world and snaps his fingers to get whatever he wants done. He rules over 127 provinces and he has the state-of-the-art communication system, much like the Pony Express. So when he doesn't eat it, they send out riders to every far end of the province so everybody knows as quickly as possible what's going on. So, of course, everybody knows how quickly Queen Vashti said no to the king and this stupid new rule law that they made and what an idiot the king is. But, of course, nobody will say that. But the one thing that is painfully clear in this story is that Ahasuerus, as king, is not in control as much as he thinks he is. Just in this one event, we see that his power is actually not power at all. He is weak. And his values, they're bankrupt. That's his kingdom. Almost everything in his kingdom is backwards. Everything is, is wrong. It is a godless kingdom. It is a kingdom where women are devalued. It is a kingdom where marriage is a sham. It is a kingdom where submission is demanded. It is a kingdom where pride is celebrated. And it is a kingdom where the king is not in control because laws don't produce obedience. It is a very different kingdom. And we are, we are actually, we are meant We are meant by the author to laugh at the absurdity of this story. Ahasuerus cannot control his wife. He cannot control his temper. Can he really control this vast kingdom? 
His kingdom is a kingdom of the world with worldly values. It has no eternal value. It is a kingdom that has no ultimate future. It is a kingdom that is in conflict with another kingdom. It is a kingdom that's in conflict with God's kingdom. Like every kingdom of the world is in conflict with God's kingdom. Throughout history and and until the consummation of history, there will always be two contrasting kingdoms that are in conflict with one another. Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. And Ahasuerus' kingdom is part of Satan's kingdom. It is a worldly kingdom. It is a man-made kingdom. It is a kingdom that does not reflect anything of God. But then, as we see, there is hidden behind this story is God's kingdom. The story shows us that, that Ahasuerus is not really king at, of the world at all. That, that's not who he is. He does not have the control that he thinks he does. Now, that, that has great relevance for you and me. Because we can often live in this day and age thinking that there is a kingdom that has way too much control in our lives. The government makes this regulation. The government makes this law. The government does this. The government does that. The local government does this. The federal government does that. The state government does this. On and on and on. And we we feel this oppression. We feel this pressure. We feel this, this boxing in that somehow we are under the rule and reign of this kingdom when in reality this is no kingdom at all. It has no value. It has no eternity. It is in contrast and conflict with God's kingdom. The one who is truly in control, brothers and sisters, the one who sits on the throne of the world, my friends, is God. And in contrast to Ahasuerus' kingdom, Just one example, Ephesians 5 shows us what a godly kingdom looks like when it comes to marriage and it comes to women and men and relationships. In God's kingdom, all women are equal in dignity and worth before God because they are made in his image. In God's kingdom, marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. In God's kingdom, Jesus treats his bride, the church, with patience and love and grace, even though she is currently not spotless. In God's kingdom, humility is honored. Brian Gregory in his commentary says this about this passage. He says, similarly in this episode, Ahasuerus is portrayed as the king of the whole realm. And his control and authority extend over all things in his world-dominating empire. His dwelling place is a palace which is described in thorough and exquisite detail. Indeed, the only two buildings in the entire Old Testament that are given such elaborate description of their furnishings are the Tabernacle Temple and Ahasuerus' palace. It even contains an exquisite garden. The only two gardens in the Old Testament are found in this part of the world, the Garden of Eden, upon which the tabernacle and temple artistry is based, and Ahasuerus' garden. At the king's invitation, all the peoples of the empire stream to his imperial city to feast with him, the king of the whole empire. Now see the contrast of the two kingdoms? 
And they look, they have similarities. But that's the thing about the kingdom of this world. The kingdoms of this world are simply counterfeit kingdoms. They may have the, the gold and the linen and the, and the beauty. They may look alike, but they are counterfeit kingdoms. And, they are, and these counterfeit kingdoms truly do not have any rule in our lives. Because they are subject to the one who rules all things. There is a king that rules us. And he is benevolent, and he is kind, and he is gracious, and he is patient, and he is gentle, and he is loving, and he is forgiving, and he is self-sacrificing. And he invites us Listen, look at, the, look at the parallels. He invites us, his name is Jesus, and he invites us to his banquet feast. Amen. And he gives us an invitation made only possible by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, his suffering, his cross, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his promised return. And this feast will take place in another palace. It will take place in God's palace. And it will take place where there are streets of gold, not just couches of gold. And the feast will center around glorifying a king, but it will be around the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the kingdom we are in. And this will be our return to a garden, Eden. This will be our return to a place where we will see God face to face, never like Vashti to be banished from God's presence. Brothers and sisters, these are two kingdoms in contrast and in conflict with one another, but we must never lose sight of what kingdom, which kingdom we are in. Now what a story this is. And, and what a story that awaits in the future for all who've put their hope and trust in Christ for their salvation. If, if you've not put your faith and trust in Christ for your salvation, you are in the wrong kingdom. But you can, you can, you can be transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light, the dominion of God's kingdom, by putting your faith and trust in Christ, the only king who is true, the only king who has absolute power, the only king who is perfect and good. That's the story. But now we we still, let's look at what the, the secret hidden providences of God exist in this story as it moves along to, we haven't even gotten to the characters of Esther and Mordecai and Haman. Growing up in a Jewish family, I was required from an early age to attend what is called Hebrew school. Three days a week for eight years, I suffered this torture (laughs) in order to be prepared for my bar mitzvah when at age 13 I would become a man according to the Jewish culture. So, three days a week, 
Twice during the week after school, I would go to Hebrew school for two hours. And then on Saturday mornings, I have to go to Hebrew school. I had to do this for eight years. So you understand my word use, torture, is relevant. There was only one saving grace about this ordeal. Bar mitzvah gifts. Knowing that when I got bar mitzvahed, I'd rake it in. That was my motivation. Now, to get those gifts, I had to study the Hebrew language. But I was an ultimate failure. So, I had the worship leader of the synagogue known called a cantor. And he literally sang my entire bar mitzvah speech, which is Hebrew. It was from the book of Exodus. He sang it in Hebrew and then recorded it on this old-fashioned tape recorder that would whine. The old people would remember this. And I would listen to it, and I memorized my entire bar mitzvah, never once reading a word of Hebrew. Now, I looked at the book when I was singing because I wanted the gifts. And nobody knew I didn't know a word of Hebrew. And one of the reasons I did not learn Hebrew, learning to read Hebrew for me was like trying to be an Olympic pole vaulter. The bar was just too high. The main problem besides my disdain for going to school after school and ruining my younger years was was learning to read Hebrew. You have to read Hebrew backwards. Hebrew is read from right to left. You have to learn to read Hebrew backwards. To understand God's providence, we must learn to read it like Hebrew. We must learn to read Hebrew backwards. We must learn to read God's providence backwards. And that's how we read the book of Esther. The author of Esther records God's providential working in the details of this story. And those reading it will see his providence because we are 2,400 years into the future. We can read it backwards. But the thing is, we can read this story backwards. We can read God's providence backwards in this story. But we have trouble reading God's providence backwards in our own lives. When we are in the midst of whatever circumstances and challenges and trials that we're facing, we we don't read backwards. We we set, we project forward. Well, well, it can only get better, or or uh, it doesn't work that way. I, I, this is years ago, and Marilyn and I walked through a very difficult season. Um, this was maybe let's see. 39. This is probably 25 years ago. We were walking through a very difficult season. And I remember it was, it was New Year's Eve. And I turned to Marilyn and I, and I just said to her, Oh, <laughs> next year can't be any worse than this year. Oops. <laughs> yeah, we, because I'm looking forward. I'm not reading God's providence backwards. 
Listen, we, we see God's providence because we have that benefit of looking backwards here. And in much the same way, we have to look backwards in our own lives over time. Every page in the book of Esther has the hallmarks of, of God's providence that we can easily see now, but would have never seen if we were living in Susa among the Jews under King Ahasuerus' rule. We would have never seen it. Look... It's all over this story. In verses 1, 3 through 8, we see that we we wouldn't recognize that Ahasuerus' party was the setup for Esther becoming queen. In verses 5 and 10, we wouldn't see that extending the party another seven days would lead to Esther becoming queen. In verses 10 and 11, we wouldn't see this drunken demand to have Vashti parade herself before his nobles as preparation for Esther becoming queen. In verse 12, we wouldn't see Queen Vashti's refusal to come and the cause of her removal as queen as preparation for Esther becoming queen. In verse 19b, we wouldn't see why Esther would be someone better in replacing the queen. Because we don't know about her yet. The party, the drunkenness, the ordering of the queen to humiliate herself, her refusal to come, the king's decree, Vashti's banishment, they're all vivid evidences of God's hidden providence that leads to a new queen, Esther. And these, these providences that not only preserve the Jews at these times, because that's what Esther's positioning is for, is to preserve the Jews from a wicked man named Haman who will call for their annihilation. And God, in his wisdom, uses all these things from the party to prepare to have Queen Esther there to rescue the Jews at this time, or also not only to preserve the Jews, then to, to preserve the Jews down through history until the coming of Christ. Without the party, there's no Christ. Without the drunkenness, there's no future Esther. And no future Esther, no future line, and no future line, no future Savior, no future Savior, no salvation. But of course, God preserves his people. God's hidden providences in this chapter are amazing and abundant and they're necessary providences so that God will preserve his people for the perfect kingdom, the kingdom that will come, that has come now and that will fulfill the redemptive plan of God for the people that he has called and loved. That is how faithful God is. That through all of these circumstances and these evil happenings, without knowing whatever the motives are behind it, we see God's motive. That He loves His people and will preserve His people. And and that's what He's telling you today. Listen, whatever your circumstances are, the the evils that you face, the struggles that you face, the sufferings that you experience, the trials that wear you down, the weariness that you walk through, listen, all of these things, 
They are under the rule of God's kind and benevolent and patient and gentle and loving hand. And although they are hidden providences, God is preserving you. He is preserving you until the day that you will enter that place, that new garden, that place where streets of gold, where you will see him face to face. That is what Esther is telling us today. The author of Esther encourages us to see in this story, with all its circumstances, he wants us to see God through eyes of faith. He wants us to learn to read providence Backwards, We must learn to read providence backwards even when it appears that God is absent. Because as we learned last week in Esther and what we will learn every week in Esther is that God is always present even when he seems most absent. Listen, God's name is never mentioned in Esther. Nothing about God or spirituality is mentioned in Esther. And yet, these verses alone tell us he is at work actively for the good of his people. And the very same is true for you and me. Even when it seems he is absent in our lives, he is working tirelessly behind the scenes for your good in every way. Close with this, Brian Gregory says this about this passage. He said, it would be easy to conclude that God is nowhere in this story or in the events that form it. Even today, we might look at the events of our own lives and see only the people We might see only the common and ordinary events. And in the absence of any obvious visible action of God, we might conclude that God is nowhere. But the narrator of the book of Esther, the master teacher, stands next to us and asks, where is God in the world today? And if we listen carefully, we will hear him whispering, look again, but this time with the eyes of faith. And you will see he is everywhere. We must learn to read God's hidden providences in our lives backwards. Father, thank you that you are active and present in our lives, even when it seems you are most absent. And Lord, thank you that we don't live in the kingdom of this world, but we live in your kingdom. And you preserve us. You protect us. You watch over us. You do us good all the time. May we leave here today with that on our heart. And Father, we ask by your spirit that you would give us the illumination, the insight, the ability to read your providences backward, that we might always look at you through eyes of faith, that we might glorify your name. In Christ's name, amen.